probably a little bit different than um, kind of a typical traditional clinical um, clinical lecture where I want us to just get oriented to some of the regulatory aspects of dealing with um, management of occupational lung disease. And some of these slides came from Denver when I moved out here. And I think the cases are good examples. So I've kept them in there, even though a little bit uh, different context than what we deal with here in Baltimore. If I can change, there we go. So um, I had forwarded to Dr. Holden some suggested reading. Um, one is um, a book chapter that really tries to put into context um, clinical, like some of these aspects of um, disability evaluation. And so um, feel free to reference that. Um, and another is a paper that is really just meant to give you some context on how to take an extensive occupational environmental history. Um, and it's got a couple mnemonics in this. And uh, Fred Papali and I wrote this together a couple years ago. All right, we still sound good? Yeah. Right. Great. All right, so I want you to think about kind of what the typical medical model that we all follow. And mainly what we do is we try to diagnose a disease, we figure out what the treatments are. And when we're talking about prevention, it really expands mainly just to kind of base on personal factors like smoking, exercise and diet. Um, and maybe when it comes down to certain conditions like allergic disease and whatnot, we'll ask about pets. But when we think of conditions more in terms of a public health model, there's a little bit more that goes into it. I think we're getting a great example of that with what's going on right now with COVID-19. Um, but particularly with occupational disease, obviously you, you need to know a diagnosis and an assessment of what the the causes from an exposure assessment standpoint. Um, but your management ultimately may require a, a trial away from the agent to see what happens. Um, and really the goal here is on a functional outcome um, and you are ultimately trying to move towards prevention. Um, and I think the key thing is that with any occupational illness, what you may be seeing is a sentinel event and the other exposed workers may also be affected. And so that ends up putting a little bit more responsibility onto you as a clinician in terms of identifying this as a public health issue. So we're gonna start with a case, um, real case, real story. So this was a 29 year old never smoker from Copper Mountain, Colorado, who developed slowly progressive shortness of breath which increasingly limited his ability to snowboard, functional outcome. He also noted recurrent episodes of fevers, chills, muscle aches, and cough in the evenings after a work shift. He worked full-time in pool and spa maintenance at a ski resort, and his symptoms intensified after hot spraying hot tub filters. So his physical exam showed very coarse lung crackles. His PFTs showed a mixed process of restriction and obstruction with a decreased DLCO. He was hypoxemic with exercise. And his chest CT showed 
central lobular nodules, and ground glass opacities, and he ultimately underwent a lung biopsy that showed granulomatous interstitial lung disease. So um, he was diagnosed with occupational hot tub lung. Sorry, you don't get to chime in on this one, but don't worry, more is coming. And so you got a diagnosis, and the treatment for this manifestation of hypersensitivity pneumonitis is A, removal from exposure, B, treatment with steroids, and then follow-up to assess how he's doing. And then ultimately, there's something that comes into the picture called an impairment rating, um, which we'll talk about a little bit further on. But the other aspects that come into play here include some degree of counseling. So this is a condition, but for his exposures in the workplace, he would not have. And so because of that, um, this is compensable, potentially. Um, and so you're a doctor, you probably don't know a lot about um, legal and kind of um, the process of workers' comp. And so how are you going to counsel them about that? So um, this is where you start to understand the benefit of having attorneys involved, that they actually can help navigate the process, or more specifically, claims um, managers within workers' comp or insurance systems. But that counseling really can just ex include telling the patient, you know, you have a condition that is potentially compensable, and I would suggest you talk to an attorney about this. You may want to notify the employer, um, given that there may be other workers who are experiencing a similar exposure. Um, and you may end up wanting to do something like contacting the county health department because the, the employer may um, need some additional assistance in trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. So there's a lot more that kind of comes into play other than I diagnosed you, I told you to get out of exposure, and I treated with you steroids. There's, there's plenty more to what happens here. So legal questions often arise. What was the exposure? Did the exposure cause or contribute to this condition? Um, and I think what we'll see with many occupational lung diseases is that they look just like non-occupational lung diseases. And the critical piece there is understanding what the elements of exposure are and if that exposure history fits into um, a probable um, relevance to that disease. Um, legal questions arise regarding future risk. Is this person going to be able to work at the same capacity they could in the future? What is the risk from their lost productivity, lost wages? Um, does this person need medical monitoring for an ongoing period of time? Um, and do other workers in the worksite need medical monitoring? And then ultimately, there comes a time when the patient gets evaluated for level of impairment. And certainly throughout this process, you may be in a position where you have to determine what work restrictions are appropriate for this person. So. Um,
there are a few kind of um, programs that I'd like to touch on today that kind of provide some of the players in this legal and regulatory environment in occupational medicine. Um, the first is OSHA and NIOSH. Second, we'll talk a little bit about MSHA, uh, the Mining Se Safety and Health Administration, um, which is involved ultimately with the Department of Labor's Black Lung Program, um, workers' compensation, and then personal injury, which is more your litigation that you know you see ads for on TV. All right, so what is OSHA? So the Occupational Safety and Health Administration was set up under the OSHA Act. Um, it was passed in 1970, and I think kind of the basic thing you should remember about this is that the, the Occupational Safety and Health Act requires employers to furnish an environment free of recognized hazards. That's called the General Duty Clause. It's very important. Um, and that employers comply with health and safety standards. Um, and the Occupational Safety and Health Act, then it established OSHA, but it also created NIOSH to perform research to support OSHA regulations. So OSHA is an enforcement agency. OSHA has the right to inspect any workplace that's covered under OSHA, small, little small um, uh, employer, employers may not be covered under OSHA. They have the right to issue civil citations for violations and to propose monetary penalties. But there are problems with OSHA. It is a small agency in the Department of Labor. It has about a thousand compliance officers in the whole country um, with a big job with over 55 million workers employed by 3.6 million employers. Um, OSHA is tasked with setting standards and those are basically rules about how much of this or that you can get exposed to. And that standard setting process is slow and contentious. Um, many substances lack permissible exposure levels. So for example, there are permissible exposure limits for asbestos and silica, but there is no permissible exposure limit for say tuberculosis. Um, and there's probably not a permissible exposure limit for if you just look around your house and find a chemical um, in your kitchen, there's probably not a PEL for that. Um, so permissible exposure limits are not designed to protect all workers. Um, PELs are based on scientific evidence, but what, which basically includes toxicologic studies as well as um, human epidemiology. But as those um, recommended exposure limits go through the regulatory process, it has to um, go through public comment and anybody who wants to weigh in on this can weigh in. And OSHA ultimately has to pass something that is feasible, that an employer could actually implement. Um, and then finally, um, compliance with an OSHA standard cannot be achieved solely by strict enforcement, just because they don't have 
very many people. The fines are actually usually not that high. And so compliance requires a commitment from both workers and management to eliminate hazards. So this is just an example that um, what you see, the picture here is called a OSHA 300 log. And every employer has to keep this log anytime somebody gets hurt anything beyond like getting first aid. Okay. And so, um, and they hate, employers hate this, right? Because you have to turn this into OSHA. So um, the, the challenge with occupational illnesses as opposed to injuries is that these are kind of chronic conditions that may not show up for a long time. If you fall off a ladder and hurt your back, you, you know right now that you're hurt and you have an occupational illness. And so I think by, this is interesting, in this um, New York Times um, article from a few years ago, they kind of pointed out this discrepancy between acute injuries versus um, a lack of um, complete coverage for the consequences of exposures that result in long-term illnesses. And it said, over the past four decades, the agency has written new standards with exposure limits for 16 of the most deadly workplace hazards, including lead, asbestos, and arsenic. 16. By contrast, OSHA has two dozen pages of regulations just on ladders and stairs. So there's a, there's a bit of a discrepancy um, between some of the things that are a little bit more easy to digest from a safety standpoint. So I'm going to transition now to NIOSH. So that stands for the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. So NIOSH gathers and analyzes data about work-related injuries and illnesses, recommends new health and safety standards, and creates what's called criteria documents, and then provides technical assistance to workers or employers who are concerned about job hazards. They help train health and safety professionals, and they also can conduct what's called a health hazard evaluation. So this is basically an inspection. And so if an employee plus two other signers um, think that there's something wrong at their workplace, they can request a health hazard evaluation. And if um, NIOSH thinks this is legit and they need to go in, they can actually go into a facility without being asked to come in by the employer. Um, so the next thing here is the IMSHA. So IMSHA was set up by the Mine Safety and Health Act. This was passed in 1977 and it provides protection to the nation's miners, millers, and ancillary mining personnel. Um, so IMSHA mandates mine inspections and requires investigation of mine accidents, and it stipulates health and safety training for miners. Um, so under this umbrella, from what we would see as pulmonologists, are issues of pneumoconiosis. And so, um, under the Department of Labor's Black Lung Program, um, that covers the kind of typical medical pneumoconiosis we think of, like co-workers pneumoconiosis, for example. But it also covers things like COPD. And in some language, they'll call that pneumoconiosis because it's a coal lung-induced injury. But from a 
just so that we're keeping our medical nomenclature correct. When we talk about pneumoconiosis, we're talking about the parenchymal lung disease you get from exposure to coal mine dust. So um, elements of a Department of Labor federal black lung claim. Um, first, you have to have a diagnosis of pneumoconiosis. And this is what kind of I was referencing that from a claim standpoint, it means any chronic lung disease or impairment significantly related to or substantially aggravated by dust exposure during coal mine employment. Um, and so, so again, that could include COPD. Um, but the pulmonary disability here, they have to have a condition that is significant enough that it would limit the, the person from being able to perform their usual coal mine work. So if for, they worked in an underground coal mine for 30 years, but for the last 10 years, they worked basically at a desk and you know they've got some level of symptoms, but it wouldn't impair them from doing that kind of work. It actually, they actually may not get benefits because it would not significantly impact their ability to perform their last coal mining job. So again, it can be kind of complicated. Um, and I used to do these a bit when I was in Denver and it was, it was, it was frustrating. But if your lung function was actually like moderately reduced or worse, it was actually pretty easy to, to at least get in the door for um, having a claim accepted. All right, this one is gonna be a case and we'll get to a page where um, we'll get to have some audience participation. <laughs> okay, so this is a previously healthy 38-year-old policeman who comes to your office because of a cough of three months duration. He first developed a cough several hours after direct directing traffic around a large chemical spill and fire. The cough is worse in the cold. He is a non-smoker. He has a history of seasonal allergies, but no history of asthma. Physical exam is unremarkable. He is not wheezing. His FEV1 to FEC ratio is reduced at 64%. His FEV1 is slightly reduced, but he does have a significant bronchodilator response, and his chest X-ray is normal. So I want you guys to think about this, and uh, uh, Van, let's do, can we do a poll? How do we do that? Let's do the poll. I don't know how to do the poll. <laughs> in the chat, maybe? Let's just do it in the chat. Okay, so which of the following do you think is the most likely diagnosis? A, reactive airways dysfunction syndrome, or RADS. B, bronchiolitis obliterans. C, irritant-induced asthma. Or D, work-aggravated asthma. I see comments coming in. We got some A's. We got some C's. I don't see any B's. I don't think I see any D's. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, wait, I think I just got the polling thing to work. Oh, wow. Look at that. Okay. It took a second. Okay. Everybody click your favorite answer there and we'll have a more quantitative approach. And it is anonymous. 
Okay. Okay, so I'm gonna end the polling. Yes, Steve, it was just one day that he directed traffic near the spill. <laughs> you see the results? I see the results. Okay. So, so can you guys see this? 43% said RADS, 57% said irritant-induced asthma. All right, good. All right, so you, the answer is this is actually RADS, so, which is basically the big bad form of irritant asthma. So I would not fault you for saying irritant asthma, but you could be a little bit more specific on this. Now I'm watching the comments and I'm cracking up. I'm glad you guys are having fun. Normally when we do this lecture in person, we have a lot of fun. <laughs> all right, all right. So yeah, so this is RADS because this is new onset of asthma symptoms within 24 hours after a single exposure to a high concentration of an inhaled irritant. It was an irritant. Um, now with RADS, the symptoms are consistent with asthma, but they have to continue for at least three months following the initial exposure. Um, and it manifests with increased bronchial hyperresponsiveness. And you have to rule out other diseases, okay? All right, so here's the next question. And Van, let's just do this in the chat, okay? Okay. So we had like half of y'all wanted to say RADS, half of you wanted to say irritant asthma. So my question to you is, how certain do I have to be of my diagnosis? A, I have to be more than 95%, B, greater than 90, C, 75, or D, greater than 50% certain? So we'll see it in the chat. Oh, see, you guys are having fun with this now. <laughs> All right, I'm loving it. All right, so we're doctors, right? We like to be right. We want to know that what we're, what we're doing is correct. So the reality, <laughs> thank you, Steve. So the reality is for um, occupational illnesses is that for work, generally for workers' comp, and this often happens in the personal injury um, world as well, is that you need to believe that this is more probable than not. That it is more probable than not that this condition is RADS. It is more probable than not that this condition that this person has is caused or contributed to by the occupational exposure that occurred. So the level of diagnostic certainty is much lower than what I think we are all more comfortable with in, doing, in performing traditional clinical medicine. But it also gives you a little bit of flexibility. Um, so the way to think about this is that, you know, diagnosis of occupational asthma is not a criminal case. The burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt is not what you're trying to go for here. And rarely in these conditions are you like greater than 70% sure that absolutely this condition is the, the, the contributed to by this um, exposure. Although the lawyers would like you to believe it has to be 100%. Okay, so you diagnose him with RADS, which is basically asthma and you start inhaled corticosteroids and bronchodilators. So what else might you do? So consistent with what you would do with 
regular asthma, you might give a trial of prednisone to reduce airway inflammation. Now here's where it gets different. So figuring out what this person does in their work, you may recommend some other form of respiratory protection, an air supplied respirator and some way to reduce his exposure. You might need to remove him completely from work depending on what he's being asked to do. Um, reassure the patient that most likely his asthma will improve without further exposure because that is true with occupational asthma and RAS. Um, you may call OSHA um, to say, look, this is, a, this is a workplace where I think there are other employees that are being exposed and let them go in and do their job. Um, you may wanna tell the patient that he should apply for worker's comp and consider obtaining an attorney. Um, and you may file a report of an occupational illness to your state. Um, some states are much better at this than others. And then last but not least, and this is something that I do um, occasionally, is call the employer to provide follow-up and recommendations for other workers. All right, so let's talk a little bit about workers' compensation. So um, the first workers' comp systems in the United States really came into being in the early 1900s. And um, this originated out of Europe in the 1800s. Um, but the primary purpose here was to help facilitate coverage of the costs of medical care and rehab and to provide compensation for lost wages up to two-thirds of the salary resulting from workplace illness and injury. But as a part of this, the employee relinquish, relinquishes the right to sue their employer for damages. So that's how you get employers to buy into this because as a consequence of this, you as the employee, every time something bad happens to you, are not suing your employer. But what does happen is that the burden of proof ends up being on the worker to show that the injury or illness was caused by the job, um, which that can become hard and the, the worker ends up needing help. Um, so, um, so what are the problems in occupational disease coverage? So I think first and foremost is under recognition of occupational diseases. I think anybody who's participated in our ILD conference has had these discussions about, well, you know, this, this form of ILD just looks like, looks like the same thing it would be if it were caused by an exposure and somebody just didn't think about it before. Um, Interestingly, ordinary diseases of life are often excluded from coverage, but some of those can actually be contributed to by workplace exposures. Um, there can be multiple causes of illness. For example, if someone has lung cancer and had asbestos exposure and smoked, we know that that is like a uh, super additive impact. Um, and so someone may just say, well, they have lung cancer because they smoked for 50 pack years. Okay, I'm sure that did contribute, but the asbestos exposure is not diminished as a significant factor just because there's something else that can be a cause. The biggest factor I think facing pulmonologists is the long latency of many of these diseases that someone might have been exposed 20 years ago and the disease doesn't start to manifest until many years later. There is a statute of limitations often related to when someone can actually file a claim. So what this means is that if you, if some doctor tells you 
you have asbestosis and that is a compensable illness, you have a certain amount of time between when you first find out about it and when you can file a claim to be eligible for workers' comp benefits. So in the state of Maryland, that is three years for asbestosis, for example. So if you get diagnosed with asbestosis, the fibrotic interstitial lung disease resulting from asbestos exposure, but you're actually feeling pretty good, you may not have any desire to make a claim right now, but five years down the road, you actually are dyspneic. You're thinking, oh, you know what? I should probably file a claim for this. It's too late. And so, um, so that's why I think kind of as a physician, when you are using language that refers to a condition being occupationally related, um, you, you do need to be somewhat deliberate about when you use that language because it can start the clock ticking on the ability for that person to be able to file a claim um, within that statute. Um, in workers' comp systems, there is an issue where the responsible employer may not be the one who caused the disease. So you have workers' comp by the employer you've worked with for the last 10 years, but actually the employer that caused had an environment that caused you to be exposed was like 30 years ago. Um, and it really um, creates little financial incentive to an employer to, to prevent exposures. So there are some problems. So uh, we're gonna basically go through, we're gonna go through this process very simplified. So first thing that happens is a worker files a claim. And let's, let's say it's a claim for occupational, let's say it's asbestosis, let's stick for that. So then the claim gets accepted. That would be amazing. <laughs> so the claim gets accepted. So then, now let's go back to occupational asthma. So then um, they get put on treatment, removed from exposure. You're involved at this point. You're putting them on LABA, ICS. You're removing them from exposure. So then what happens is at some point, the workers' comp claims officer is going to want to know when is this person at something called maximum medical improvement or MMI. And so MMI is basically when you think this person is as good as they're going to get, they're on the appropriate medical therapy, I think we have optimized what this person's lung condition is. And so when the person is at MMI, um, then the, there is something that happens called an impairment rating. Okay, so impairment usually refers to some kind of an abnormal, an objective abnormality you can dem demonstrate um, either on a diagnostic test, a certain uh, amount of medication that is required to control symptoms, something that you can kind of quantify. And um, there are different ways that lung diseases get classified. Um, mainly, um, asthma has its own scheme to classify the level of impairment and say like hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, and other parenchymal lung diseases have a separate set. And so what you're looking at right here on the right is a table from something called the AMA guides to the evaluation of permanent impairment. And there is a chapter on um, doing impairment ratings for respiratory disease. And 
it will include elements of PFTs. It'll also include elements from cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And depending on how bad your lung function is, you get certain number of points. And then ultimately, you determine what level of impairment the person has. So the example here is class one, two, three, four, based on how their PFTs fall out. And then once they're in that classification, that is going to ultimately translate to a dollar amount as to how much compensation that person is going to get. So if somebody has class four impairment, that means that you know their lung function is really bad. Um, that is going to translate ultimately by to a dollar amount as assigned by um, administrative law judge. Um, and interestingly, the respiratory impairment can be combined with um, impairment from some other organ system if that also was affected by the exposure. So um, this is kind of interesting. If you kind of like methodologic kind of flowcharts and how you get somebody to an impairment rating status, um, there it is. There's a method to the madness, and each state's a little different. Um, but this may be something you have an interest in and may want to get involved in. All right, the final kind of realm that we're going to talk about is third-party liability litigation. So these are lawsuits brought against manufacturers of harmful substances used in the workplace. And so major causes of this include manufacturing defects, design defects, inadequate warnings, or negligence in testing. So these are extremely costly, but the awards are much higher than in workers' comp claims, and they compensate for not just lost wages, but disfigurement, medical and legal costs, as well as pain and suffering. So, Ellen, I mean, I think, yes. Do you see some of the questions from the fellows? Oh, no, I, I, no, put, okay. the, I put the chat away. Um, Katie had a question regarding, can the compensation level change over time? Um, so, if you got rated at some date and then 10 years later, could you get re-rated? Is yeah. that kind of the yeah, question? Yeah, that's kind of the yeah. question. Like, if you sort of get diagnosed but aren't terribly symptomatic and you file your claim then, and then it, the disease progresses, like, how does that change things in terms of compensation? That is a great question. So, I think each state does it a little bit differently. Um, but that's also, I think, some of the reasons why, um, you know, patients may not feel like they're, they need to file a claim because they don't feel like they're that impaired. But, um, but that is an issue and it is state dependent. And then Max had a question if the employer, can the employer appeal the employee's findings or doctor's findings? <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This process is not simple at all. There end up being depositions and other people getting, the employer gets their own expert involved. So there is always a process to determine um, if the claim is legit or not. So absolutely. And would COVID be covered under workers' comp? So this is a hot topic right now. And the answer is maybe. Um, I actually read when I was prepping for this, I read something that was posted um, on an insurer website 
this past weekend. And if you guys are interested in that, I can forward that along. Jury's still out, of course. I think that's it. Okay. Can I jump in something related to the work? Oh, there, there's Dr. Clarin. <laughs> yeah. Um, so sometimes with workers' compensation, documenting uh, specific exposures can make a difference. And we do have a um, both UMMC and like UMB and FPI, like there are a couple different tracking systems for reporting um, an exposure event. So, you know, I would recommend that if you have, uh, if you're involved in an event where you think you may have been exposed, that you document that just in case you wind up getting sick. And you're talking about COVID exposure, correct? Correct. And you know what? I think it would be helpful also to, that's on the UMB page, is that correct? Well, there are two, there are two different systems. There is if you, if you do document an exposure using the button on the UMB coronavirus page, we will get the information over to UMMC if you should be UMMC. But UMMC has its own smart sheet system for logging exposure events. Um, and if, if you want me to just send out that information, I can get it to you, Stella, and you can distribute it. I think this group would be interested in that. Okay. Yes, that would awesome. be great. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks. So speaking of the jury still being out, um, I think while, you know, some of the kind of personal injury lawsuits seem extremely unpalatable, you know, these are the same people that the same attorneys that oftentimes do medical malpractice. Um, and I think in it's very easy as a doctor to want to kind of, you know, find that unpleasant. Um, it is litigation not legislation that actually got asbestos out of most products in this country. So there is a place for it. So our last case report. So this is a consumer with possible popcorn lung. So this is a true case. So this is a 53-year-old never smoker who uh, came to National Jewish Health in May of 2006 because of shortness of breath and cough. And on his PFTs, he had a decreased FEV1, but a normal DLCO. On chest CT, he had some mild bronchiectasis, but evidence of air trapping. And he had actually gone for a VATS that showed lymphocytic and granulomatous inflammation with obliterative bronchiolitis, uh, but otherwise had findings that are consistent with hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So, Despite being on steroids, his lung function worsened. And you can see kind of the trend here, what kind of happened over time. And um, his lung, his FEV1 got kind of um, more progressively severe. And this is a couple shots of his CT scan um, that showed some air trapping, but otherwise not totally. Um, not fibrotic by any means, um, not a ton of nodularity. But on his biopsy, sure enough, he did have evidence of um, bronchiolar obstruction with some loosely formed granulomas in proximity to the bronchioles. So because he got this biopsy that showed um, granulomatous involvement, he got sent to the Occupational Lung Disease Clinic. Uh, 
And he had this extensive exposure history. If anybody's ever seen any of my notes, you know that's a long history. So his history was significant that he had worked for a bank. Um, he was a minister. He did have a cell phone carpet cleaning company from 1998 to 2003, but the otherwise had recently just been in furniture sales. Um, his environmental history was significant that he had moved to his current town home in August. He had no hot tubs, no birds, no moisture problems, no humidifiers, no hazardous hobbies. He just played golf. He didn't grind golf clubs. He just played golf, except for his response to this question. So he was asked, do you eat a lot of buttered popcorn? And his answer was, I am popcorn. I am a two pack per day user. It's all I eat. How do you know? And had daily consumption of extra butter flavored microwave popcorn for the last 10 to 12 years home respiratory so I asked him this was because this doctor had actually been doing active medical surveillance work for the flavor industry at the time and said man this guy's disease actually is kind of acting like popcorn lung so so that's why he was asked questions about popcorn and see if nevin's todd is listening to this i know you have that popcorn on your questionnaire so Good job. So, um, so subsequently, um, National Jewish sent out an industrial hygienist to his house, and they found detectable diacetyl levels in the patient's home during 15-minute popping of two bags of popcorn that were at least somewhat similar to the levels you could get exposed to working in a flavor manufacturing facility where popcorn lung had previously been first recognized. And so because of these concerns, the case was reported to the FDA, to the EPA, because it was consumed, you know, is out in the public sphere, OSHA and the CDC. So ultimately, this ended up leading to a lawsuit. And this guy, he called himself Mr. Popcorn. I am Mr. Popcorn. He was awarded $7 million in damages in 2012. And in this uh, litigation, the popcorn manufacturer was assessed to be 80% at fault. Interestingly, the uh, King Supers grocery stores that sold the popcorn was assessed to be 20% at fault. Um, and in a, <laughs> a 2007 letter, to federal agencies by Dr. Rose at that time. Basically, she framed it this way. We cannot be sure that this patient's exposure to butter-flavored microwave popcorn from daily heavy preparation has caused his lung disease. However, we have no other plausible explanation. So this guy got $7 million in this personal injury suit. Um, in another similar suit, and this was actually a worker, a 32-year-old popcorn worker who developed bronchiolitis obliterans was awarded $20 million in 2004. So I just show this to demonstrate that the stakes in personal injury are much higher than what we see in workers' comp. All right, we're getting close to wrapping up. 
And in kind of the last few slides, I just want to give kind of a brief overview about taking an occupational and environmental exposure history because everything we've talked about so far ultimately hinges on somebody asking an exposure history here. And it can be kind of hard to do. You know, you're busy, you're trying to ask about everything else. Um, and so I think trying to simplify it, start with these things, and then if you need to dig deeper, you can dig deeper. So five simple questions. What kind of work do you do? Do you think your health, do you think your health problems are related to your work? Do your symptoms improve when you are at home? That's obviously relevant for a, a current work exposure, not for something that happened 20 years ago. Have you ever been exposed to dust, fumes, chemicals, or radiation at your workplace? And have you ever, have you ever held a job that requires use of personal protective equipment? You guys can all answer yes to that now. So if they answer yes to any of this, you may want to ask more history. So if you can't remember those five questions, some people like mnemonics. And so there are a couple papers that were published within the last few years where they tried to come up with some mnemonics. And one mnemonic is WAX, spelled W-H-A-C-S, WAX. What do you do? How do you do it? Are you concerned about any of your exposures on and off the job? Do you have any coworkers or other people who are exposed? And are you satisfied with your job? That, that is a sometimes correlated. Um, and then another mnemonic is chopped, which I look at this and I see COPD, but the, <laughs> but the mnemonic is chopped with um, an H2O in the middle. And so that is just meant to trigger you to ask about community. Um, what kind of community do they live in? Do they next, do live next to a toxic waste dump? We were on um, consults uh, a week ago and we did have a patient who lived next to a toxic waste dump. <laughs> um, home, what um, exposures are present in your home? Um, what hobbies do you have? Occupation, what personal habits, that would be a good reason to ask about popcorn, for example, diet and drug. So um, when you get into the point where you think, you know what, something's up here and I really need to get an extended occupational history, this is gonna take some time. And this is where you get into a lifetime occupational history. And here you want a description of all the jobs that they've held, their job titles, places of employment, and if it was manufacturing, like what did they make? Because um, they may not be able to tell you what it was made of, but if they tell you what they make, you can usually do some digging to figure out what's behind the curtains here. Um, and then um, trying to have the um, worker help you do an exposure evaluation. So get a complete description of the operation as performed by the worker. I oftentimes will give the person a piece of paper and have them draw me a map of like how, you know, what's the workflow in this place? Like, okay, how does this product go from here to there? Then what happens? And then what happens? Um, and that's usually very helpful. And I, I come back and I reference it when I'm seeing the patients, you know, like months or years later. Um, if you have the ability to get industrial hygiene data like air sampling, that is extremely helpful. It is most likely not going to be available. Um, but one thing that is available and is required by law is that the employer must provide, say, or make available 
safety data sheets. You may have called these MSDSs when you were growing up, but safety data sheets. And at least that gives you some context as to what the material is that the person may have exposure to. And it can give you some insight into, is this something that's hazardous or not? And where can I go and look more? You want to know about timing of symptoms in relation to work, the presence of symptoms among similarly exposed workers. Is there ventilation available? What kind of general housekeeping is performed? Do they dry sweep everything? That's usually very bad for inhalational lung diseases. Um, is equipment being properly maintained? And then of course, is there respiratory protection available? Is it available? Has it been fitted if it's a tight fitting respirator? Is it used? And is it maintained? So residential history, I think you guys are pretty familiar with asking about pets, ask about hot tubs, ask about moisture intrusion, leaks to the ceiling, leaks in the basement, um, rec center use. If they don't, they may not swim at their house, but they may swim a lot at the YMCA. Um, ask about hobbies, and of course, asking about spouse's employment. So I think kind of with that, we are going to wrap up. And the way I want you to think about some of these diseases, uh, of occupational diseases, is that um, we're always trying to think about these things in terms of how we can prevent them. Primary prevention, can we substitute a less hazardous material in place of the more dangerous material? Um, can you put in an engineering control that is going to take something bad out of the environment where someone has to work? And then um, kind of going down the ladder, usually the last thing on the hierarchy actually is personal protective equipment. And that is because it requires people to comply and they have to do it. So if you can engineer out a problem, it's much better than trying to get to the point where you're having to rely on personal protective equipment. Um, the duties that are involved kind of once you've diagnosed an occupational illness, you need to inform your patient of test results, the diagnoses, and whether you think it is work-related or not. Inform the patient of the need for treatment. Refer to specialists if appropriate. Advise the patient of possible legal issues and benefits. Preserve confidentiality when possible, um, and certainly consider the implications of this being a possible sentinel health event and that thinking about this more in a public health model as opposed to an individual kind of traditional medical model. Take home points. In the medical model, we clarify the diagnosis and then we give treatment. In a public health model, there's written communication about whether this disease is or is not work-related. You provide counseling to a patient to file a workers' comp claim if the illness is work-related. Communicate with the company potentially regarding medical removal of a patient or work restrictions if applicable. And then there are efforts to assure that other workers with similar exposures are not at risk. And that may require an occupational medicine consult. And we are here to help with that. And that is it. I have a feeling there were more questions coming up in the chat, which I haven't seen, but I'm happy to take them and we'll go from there. Thanks, Stella. Um, there are no more questions in the comment. 